Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95. With Tesco, where you won't pay more for the products that matter most to you. Tesco, every little helps. Gayborn, good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you, Joseph. Thank you for having me. It sounds like the weather is the same in Limerick as it is in Dublin. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Tell me, Gay, why are you coming to Limerick this week? I'm coming to Limerick to attend your beautiful new Lime Tree, Lime Tree Theatre. And we're there on Wednesday night. And you're going to see Gayburn in person doing a little show, which we've done on several occasions around the country, with great success so far. What are the origins of this show? Well, the show simply came together out of a little conversation that I was having with two buddies about things that happened on radio and television down through the years. It's very, very difficult. I keep on saying to people that if you see a poster saying tonight at eight o'clock, Daniel O'Donnell, you have a fairly good idea of what you're going to get. Or if you see a poster tonight at eight o'clock, Christy Moore, you have a pretty good idea of what you're going to get. But if you see a poster saying tonight at 8 o'clock, Gay Byrne, everybody says, uh, yes, but uh, doing what exactly? And in the early stages of the show, unfortunately, people thought I was coming on to bring them a history of 50 years of RTE or 50 years of Montrose or 50 years of The Late Late Show or 50 years of radio or whatever. They had no idea what the show was about. So they all got a very pleasant surprise. They just came along on faith to see Gay, who they remember very fondly from the Late Late Show on the radio programme, and they went away laughter-filling every orifice, if you can believe that. Now, your career was about putting other people centre stage and interviewing them. How do you feel about being on centre stage this Wednesday? Well, you see, I'm, I'm told, incidentally, that the Lime Tree is a beautiful new theatre. Everybody I mentioned it to says, oh, you're in for a treat. It's just magnificent. And then the following night, on Thursday night, we're in Perlis. And whereas the Lime Tree is, is well, well, very heavily booked at the moment, and we're very lucky in the show so far. When I say we, by the way, Kathleen joins me for 10 or 15 minutes on the show halfway through, and she brings people some memories of poetry poems that they haven't heard since they were in school. And it is remarkable how popular that spot is. People love hearing the poems that they haven't heard for many, many years. And it gives me a chance to go away backstage and have seven pints and get me back on stage in even better form than I started out with. But being at the centre of things yourself, rather than what you did for many years on The Late Late and on radio, bringing other people to the fore... Well, I'm pretty well accustomed to appearing in public because I started many, many moons ago in the dim distant days when in Limerick, no more than in Dublin and every other city around the country, there were Sunday night variety concerts, mostly, not exclusively, but mostly in aid of the church building fund because they were always held in halls which were owned by the church and run by the parish priest. And so they were variety concerts. And generally speaking, since I wasn't a comedian and I didn't tell jokes and I didn't play the piano and I couldn't dance and I didn't have a banjo and I didn't sing songs, I was usually unemployed to come on as MC. So I got a very early experience of simply coming on stage and talking to people and telling them stories and so on. And then it's very like the Lime Tree, no more than any of the other theatres we've appeared in around the country. It would be very similar to the Late Late Show and confronting an audience in the studio for the Late Late Show live. So it's, it's, it's no great bother to me to do that. And I enjoy it. Was it good training, by the way, uh, being an MC standing out there in the old days when maybe there was a disaster 
pressure going on behind the scenes and you had to keep the show on the road. Well, that is part of the training and that's part of the magic. And that's why, incidentally, I say to any young person who's now in secondary school and thinking of going on to university or thinking of going on to study for something or other, I always encourage them to do something which will get them up in front of a crowd because somewhere along the line, no matter what they do in life, the day is going to dawn when they're asked to stand up and speak in front of a crowd of people. And the strange thing is, as you've probably found during your interviewing on radio down through the years, Joe, and that is that the greatest fear that people have is not being caught in a burning house. It's not falling into a river, not knowing how to swim. It's not being involved in a plane crash. The biggest fear that most people have is standing up and addressing a crowd of people, addressing an audience. And whether you're chairman of the local tennis club or the local golf club or you're captain of this, that or the other, whatever, sometime during your life, you're going to have to stand up and make a speech in front of a crowd. And it's great training to get yourself involved in a debating society or a drama group or a musical society or anything at all which will get you up on a platform or a stage and talk to people. Now, you must be the most active retiree in the country. Are you still working because you love it or because you need to, or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both, Joe. And I'm very, when I, when I gave up the Late Late Show and retired from the radio programme, I made it very, very clear at that time that I was not retiring from broadcasting. I was simply getting out of a six-and-a-half-day week, which I had done for well-nigh 40 years And I think 40 years of a a six-and-a-half-day week is long enough for anybody, and I didn't want to ever do that again because you start thinking, well, how long have I got left on this mortal coil and what do I want to do with it and do I want to continue working six-and-a-half days a week? And the answer is very quickly no. So, But I did make it clear that I wanted to go on doing bits of television and radio at my own pace for as long as I was invited to do it, for as long as I was able to do it, and for as long as I was enjoying it. And all of those three conditions... Uh, continue to be to be met. So here we are. The, this this live show that I'm I'm doing in in the Lime Tree on Wednesday and in Perlis on Thursday night. This show is a very very recent addition to the thing, and it's just something that I had in my head for many years. And I thought, I wonder, is there a show there? Maybe I could do it. I like the sort of format, talking to people and telling them the stories and so on. And maybe it will work. So the only way you can find out, as you well know, is uh, on, on anything like this, is to do it and find out, does it work? And so with a little trimming here and there, it works very well indeed, I'm happy to say. Do you know that most places we've been, we've been invited back by popular demand. Isn't that wonderful? So I'm hoping the same thing will happen in Limerick. Do you prefer uh, radio or television? I think... I think as you find every single day that radio is much more immediate and it's much more uncluttered and you can get through to people very much more easily and you've only yourself and a microphone, whether you're talking to them personally in the studio or whether you're just doing what you're doing now, talking to me on the telephone, it's, it's much easier and direct and straightforward, whereas of necessity on television, if you're talking to some, some, if you're speaking about something like the Late Late Show or the Saturday Night Show or whatever, you're talking about things that frighten people insofar as they're in a completely strange environment. I'm talking about guests now, and you're expecting them to be natural and relaxed and easy and, and tell you their story. But they're confronted by all this strange equipment, microphones and an audience, the dreaded audience. And they're staring at them and waiting to be sort of entertained or kept interested. And they're 
surrounded by cameras and the floor manager and lights and all of that sort of thing. And that must be very, very nerve-wracking and off-putting for ordinary people who are not accustomed to it. And so I think that that, that, that general clutter makes it a bit more difficult to get people to tell their story rather than easily on the telephone to a radio programme. But among broadcasters today, is the art of listening still alive? Well, I think that one of the great things that I had, if I may give myself a little pat on the back, was that I was a very good listener. And so are you. So are you, actually, Joe. Now that I'm speaking to you, I can tell that you're a good listener because I haven't heard a a single word or syllable from you while I'm speaking. And that's a very good thing. It shows that you can sit back and listen, wait for me to finish saying what I'm I'm trying to say, and then come in with the next question. And that in itself is a very good thing, just to sit and listen and give somebody a chance. Now, admittedly, on news shows like Morning Ireland, they don't have all, all the time in the world. And when you're dealing with politicians, they tend to go into a routine, as it were, about whatever question you raise with them. And you have to stop them doing that. And you have to cut through it to try to get an answer to the question that you asked. Uh, But generally speaking, I think that most people of which I have experience on radio and television, they are not good listeners. Indeed, and that can often be a problem. What about command of the English language then? Well, I think too that I'm an old Christian brother's boy and and the more I go through life and the more I live, the more I, I am astounded at the comprehensive nature of the education we got. We can all sit in criticism of the Christian brothers, and we do, and we do, because generally speaking, in our day, it was a fairly rough house and a fairly tough house. But their end aim and ambition for each one of us was to get us through an intercert or a leaving cert and get us a good job, a good permanent pensionable job was the great thing. Uh, but, but they gave us an extraordinary education, and they did give us an extraordinarily good grounding in grammar and syntax and and articulation and elocution and that kind of thing. And that stood to us. And I find now that people are remarkably lacking in that. Now, The Late Late Show, your successors have done a fine job, but none of them has ever done it quite the way you did. Why is that? Well, people say this to me all the time. Mind you, they are people of a certain age and a certain disposition. And I think it is because people tend to resent change and tend to revolt from change. And what they say is, ah, gay is not the same. They don't do it the way you do it. You did it. Well, of course they don't, because one of them is called Pat Kenny. The other is called Ryan Tuberty. And my name is Gay Byrne. And we can't be all the same. And we all do different things in our own different ways. So, but people tend to people tend to look, look, look back in, with fondness on, on the way it used to be done by a fellow called Gay Byrne, and it's not done the same way by Pat Kenny, and it's not done the way by Ryan Tuberty. But surprise, surprise, you, you shouldn't expect it to be so. You should expect it to be different. And, and, and I think they are just people who are kind of sad that there is change generally in the world, and that is an aspect of growing old. But did you have more control over The Late Late Show than your successors? I was different from the others in that I was my own producer and that only arose from tradition and precedent and it was established in 1962 
all that time ago and I was a very, very, very unusual animal in television terms because I was my own producer and therefore that simply meant that anything I really, really, really wanted to do on the show, we did and anything I really, really, really did not want to do, we did not do. Whereas now there's generally a, a producer who is separate from the host and and he or she deals with the researchers who are separate from the host, whereas I run the I ran the entire show pretty well according to my own feelings and my own gut instincts and all of that. And I suppose that was reflected on what came out on screen. And did you always start the week thinking about it in showbiz terms? Would it work on TV or indeed on radio, because as you know, a lot of the great debates of the time happened on the late, late show and people got very exercised about it. But for you, was it entertainment first? It was always entertaining and uh, entertainment first. And my definition of that is that anything which is the opposite to boring. And if I thought something was going to be boring, then how could I possibly expect other people not to find it boring? And I worked on the basis that if I found something interesting, coupled with my knowledge of what was going on in the country at the time and coupled with my knowledge of what people were saying and talking about and getting exercised about at the time, if I thought it would hold their attention, then that was a good one for the Late Late Show. If I thought it would not hold their attention and I thought, you know, who really cares about this? Who really is interested in this? Then by and large and generally speaking, we didn't do it. But I was very careful that if we had if we had on any one Friday night a very serious topic which we followed to the end, the next night, the next Friday night, I made sure to be very, very light indeed because the whole Late Late Show in my time was built on the premise that you must keep changing it. Every week it has to be, it has to be a lucky dip. We never forecast, we never advertised in advance who was going to be on. And so it was a lucky dip and a surprise if you tuned in and stayed with it very often it wasn't as exciting as the previous week or indeed the week following, but by and large it was a lucky tip and you were surprised by who was on and who was not. People often attached personal and political ideologies to you in the context of what was happening on The Late Late in particular. Did you always work to keep those out of the equation? Well, I think that it's very difficult to explain to young people now the effect which television in general had when it arrived in Ireland in 1962. And we had been told it was coming and we waited with bated breath and great expectation for a long time, well, certainly a year. And, and remember that even, even the week before Irish television went on the air, there were people in the main streets of our cities looking in through the window of television shops to, to stare for hours at the test card. And they were presumably imagining in their minds what television would be like when it came. But when it did come, it is impossible to explain to young people now the, the significance that they attached to everything which happened on television and the extent to which they became involved in everything that they saw on television and how important they how importantly they rated everything that there was on television and therefore there were various strands of society including the clergy including the hierarchy including political parties including various organizations like the GAA and the Irish language lobby and they were working hard all day every day in the early years to get control of this thing called television and they knew that if they got control of Montrose real control of it 
that they would eventually realize their ambitions, whatever their ambitions were. And so there was this tussle going on uh, on all sides for control of this organization. And the early people who were in charge of it, and I was there right from the very beginning, so I know they were Kevin McCourt and Eamon Andrews and the, the various people on the then authority, they fought a daily battle to retain the independence of RTE against all the criticism and all the attempts to get control of and it. Did and you it was come, a hard fight. Did you come under pressure yourself? All the time. All the time. Everybody did. Everybody did. But you, you realise that either you can take the heat or you have to get out of the kitchen. And I didn't want to get out of the kitchen. And at that time, I, didn't, I couldn't afford to get out of the kitchen because I was, I was a married man with two young children and I had the gas bill to pay and the ESB bill to pay and the car to keep on the road and all those usual things. And so I couldn't afford to get out of the kitchen, so you simply had to sustain this pressure. But everybody came in for criticism. Everybody came in for, for uh, an attempt to get control of something. And I was, I was, again, reverting to that peculiar fish that I was, that I was my own producer, and doing this show, which everybody watched and everybody got involved in, and we presented what we thought would be entertaining I, I, and interesting. And you may not be aware of this, but you've actually been helpful to this programme because you've been kind enough to go around the country passing on some of your experience to broadcasters and the producer of this programme, Anne-Marie, and our head of news, Gillian, Indeed. Uh, were, were, were with yeah. you uh, last year. Now, they tell me that you said that when you were talking to researchers uh, about an item that they were preparing, you sometimes said to them, did you fancy the guest? Yes. Is that true? Yes. Why? If, we, we, well, we, I had a lot of women, young women, on, on both the radio program working with me and on the Late Late Show. They changed from time to time because they, generally speaking, they went on to better things. But nonetheless, um, I think it's a very good indication, especially if you're dealing with a young woman and, and she has been researching a male guest. I think it's very interesting to ask her, did you fancy him? Because it's amazing the answers you get from not in the least. And then you say, why? And they say, well, you know, it's very difficult. And you say, yeah, but why? And suddenly they say, I don't know, I found him a bit creepy. Now, that gives me an idea of what the guy is going to be like, because I'm dealing with her. I'm dealing with the guest through her. Or indeed, on the, at the other end of the spectrum, if she says, I fancied him like mad, I thought he was fantastic, amazing. Well, that gives me another piece of information. And ditto, if it's a male researcher dealing with a female, you ask the same, because it's amazing the little insights that you get, which is apart and above and beyond the normal course of research of factual information. And, and amazingly, women have a great insight into these things, I believe. I believe, and, and their own gut instinct is always extremely interesting. Now, of course, um, because it was a two hours plus television show live every Friday night, sometimes the best moment of the show was something that happened by accident, like Lenny Henry falling out of the chair. Very often, very often, and it's odd you should say because I was stopped in the street only two weeks ago, three weeks ago, by a man who wants to say, lovely to meet you and shake my hand, thank you for all the shows and blah, 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 and it's not the same, all the usual things. But he said, I will never, ever forget the most amazing thing that happened on the Late Late Show. And he then went on to remind me of something which I'd completely forgotten about, 
which was the night at the very end of the show. Remember, this is now 11.30, and we used to run a postal quiz, if you remember, for a motor car or some amazing prize, far less than they have now. But anyway, it was a significant prize then. And I called a woman in Cork whose card had been taken out of the thousands of postcards which we have received for the, for the postal quiz, and she said she was actually attending a wake when I called her. And she was attending the wake of her daughter, who had actually the previous Tuesday posted the postcard, which I was holding in my hand live on television on The Late Late Show. She had posted it on Tuesday on behalf of her mother, and then she had been knocked down on the Thursday night and killed. And now she was being waked on the Friday night when I called the number on the card, which was her home. And her mother spoke to me. How difficult was that? And it it was reasonably difficult. It was weird. It was strange. It was extraordinary. And that silence settled on the studio audience, which you only get in such moments where they think, is this a gag? Is this an April Fool's joke? Although it wasn't April. What's going on here? And then they realized this is actually genuine. And that silence settled upon the audience. And mercifully on that night, we happened to have sitting beside me because they'd been on as guests earlier on, Brendan Kennelly, the, the uh, uh, well, well-regarded and well-loved poet and lecturer in Trinity. And we had a young nun who had become a hermit nun in County Mayo at the time. And mercifully for me, and a great help to me, he had a suitable little consolation condolence poem to recite to the woman. And the nun had a nice little consolation condolence prayer to say to the woman and then to everybody's amazement i said well obviously on on such an amazing situation you don't want to take part in the quiz and she said yes i do i do and she did and she won the car and she took part in the quiz and won the car on behalf of her dead daughter Mm, um, so that was a pretty that was a pretty unusual thing and could only happen on a live show could only happen it would never ever happen or be retained on a recorded show. Yes. And I'd forgotten about it and the man reminded me of it. it. And, and, and I must say, I mean, I think it's generally the case or the view is that for many years in RTE, you were vastly underpaid. But are your successors vastly overpaid? <laughs> yeah, Joseph, I, I am not prepared to live as dangerously as that. I'm not going to be... The, several newspapers have been on the phone to me asking me what I think about that. I was superbly underpaid for 23 years and on a three-month contract until I, was, I got an offer from America. And then I was given the two-year contract for the first time in my life and, and considerably more money just to hold me. Um, I'm not going to comment on their salary. I think there's so much involved and there's so much envy and jealousy and begrudgery going on in the country because of the general situation. People are very angry around the country at the moment about their situation. They're very, they're very, they're very seething with a, with a, with a resentment about things. And and I'd rather not be dragged into it. Now Terry Wogan, a Limerick man, never heard of him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> says that he had to go across the water because you were the main man in RT, and he knew he had to move. Would you agree? I don't know. You see, you'd, you'd need to see it from his perspective, I suppose. And I mean, Mike Murphy, the dreaded Mike Murphy, says something the same, that I was ensconced in the Late Late Show. Unless I dropped dead, they were not going to, to get, get a whack at it. And the amazing thing is, to me, 
having been there. The amazing thing to me it was and continues to be that most people broadcasting in Ireland think that the Late Late Show, hosting the Late Late Show, is the culmination of all their prayers, the culmination of all their ambitions, the culmination of all their work, and it would be the most wonderful thing to happen to them. Having been there for so long, I kind of doubt that. But anyway, this is what they said. That, that But wasn't it a good thing for Mr. Wogan that he moved out? Yeah, I'm, he, I'm sure he'd agree with that. <laughs> he, absolutely. Yeah. He's, he's, the boy has done good, as they say. He has no regrets whatsoever, no. and I know that for a fact. Now, Gay, you know that, like every radio station around the country, we have to make a few quid. I'm going to take a quick break, but ask you to hang on for a few more minutes. All right. Gay Byrne is with us this morning in advance of his show at the Lime Tree Theatre on Wednesday evening, and Pauline has texted to say, Hi, Joe. Love Gay Byrne. Used to listen to his radio show on RTE Radio and the Late Late Show on TV, but I've never watched it since he left. Well, I suppose that's a, a matter of opinion, isn't it? Um, now, Gay, who in your family used to call you Gaybo the Ghost and why? I'm just thinking to myself, you had a very healthy commercial break there. Well done. Yeah, we're delighted right. with that. Yeah. Good support fine. from the local businesses. <laughs> now, listen, have you been to the Source Theatre in Perlis? No. I was hoping you might give me an idea of what it's like. We're there on Thursday night, as you know, after Limerick, and, and I was just wondering what it's like. That's, that's all. I presume it's a new theatre, is it? Yeah, I think so. Now, mind you, it's outside our broadcast area, so I don't know, I know that much. I know yeah. that, but there would be a sort of an, an overflow, as it were. Yes, oh, that's absolutely true, definitely. Yes. But, but tell me, Gable the Ghost. No, I was never called Gable the Goat. Where? Ghost. 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 No, I was never called Gable the Ghost either. Uh, is, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure... I'm now sure... I think of it... Now that I think that Gabo the Goat would be more likely... Yeah, I'm sure I read in one of your books that whether it was your mother-in-law or somebody who said that you were very quiet... Ah, you see what you're getting at. Yes, 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 yes. For a while, when she was alive, obviously, Kathleen's mother came to live with us in our house in Hope. And and I don't know what what gave rise to the thing, but she realised after some time that I was actually quite quiet. Now, I don't know what she actually expected from me, she knew me well before we were married. Of course she did. But she didn't know me well, but she knew me fairly well, like, like any mother-in-law would get to know the fellow who's going to marry their daughter. But, but apparently she did say that. She found it quite extraordinary that I was very quiet and into my... Well, I was reading a lot and I was working a lot at home and then I would go for long walks and so on. So that probably gave rise to it. Yes, indeed. I forgot about that. Gable the ghost. Now, you uh, obviously were the host of the Rose of Tralee for um, many years. And 87 sti- years. Yeah, 87 years. And still very popular here. But the one thing that we get a lot of calls about, Gay, is the fact that Limerick, for example, does not go automatically through to Tralee any longer, that there's this regional final that takes place. What are your thoughts on that? I don't understand that. What uh, I'm not up with that. Game. Yeah, you see, what happens is you you become the Limerick Rose, as our current Rose does. Yes. You go to a regional finals now in Port Leisha, and only a certain number of the roses go through to Tralee anymore. So right. the people you see on the stage are not necessarily all of the roses picked. Well, I suppose the quick answer to that is that the the when when I last did the Rose of Tralee. We had about 32 girls. Now, 32 is pushing it in terms of... That's spread over two nights. And even that is pushing it in terms of time and in terms of the many, uh, of how many we can accommodate. 
look at me saying we have nothing to do with it anymore. I did 25 years of it, and that's enough for any man. But anyway, um, I, I think it would be an effort to cut down on the actual number of girls who want to be on stage in Tralee. And I would imagine that probably 30 is about the best number spread over two nights. Okay. Now, Mary Lavelle has called to say, I heard Gay mention the time when the lady won the competition and it turned out that there had been this death in the family that you were talking about, Gay. I was actually the lady, says Mary, that was on just before her. And Gay was laughing at me because my husband's name was on the card, but my husband wasn't there at the time. I had no luck. Say hello to Gay for me. I'm his biggest fan. Well, isn't that very, very nice indeed? And I do say hello. I'd forgotten that we'd already made one phone call. Yes, that used to happen. You had to be the person named on the card. If you weren't there, well, you could get into all sorts of difficulties and legalities and everything else. So unfortunately, the husband wasn't there and she couldn't do the quiz. Hard luck. But the other woman then, you see, things could be worse. Now, the Irish Times said about you, or the Irish Times' august institution, that Gaborne was unquestionably the most influential radio and television personality in the history of the Irish state. What do you think of that? Well, isn't that a powerful accolade? And isn't it wonderful whoever thought that up to say such a nice thing about me? I think probably that I'm going back 50 years. I'm going back to 1962, and I'm going back to the first probably the first five, certainly the first five years, probably the first 10 years of television and the extent to which it influenced people and the extent to which it, everything was of significance which happened on it and, and the arguments which television coverage of many things gave rise to. And I'm not just talking about the Late Late Show. There were all sorts of other programs as we eventually got into our stride after 1962, after the first four or five years. There were lots of very, very good programs going on and people took them very seriously. And in in that way, I believe television had a huge influence on Ireland, not just the Late Late Show, but lots of other things as well. And then we, we got into the stage where we're at now, where there are probably 150 channels available all day, every day, 24-7, uh, in, in everybody's drawing room and we've become so accustomed to it now that I, I wonder does anybody have the same uh, does anything have the same influence in the way of a television programme anymore and, or indeed a radio programme and, and I mean you were a very high profile figure for many years you still are in this country but maybe not quite in the limelight the way you were no. during that time on, on the Late Late Show and yet you managed to largely keep your private life private but for somebody like Ryan Tuberty today who to be fair is probably the highest profile personality would you like to be as high profile uh, now as you were then, considering the nature of our media? Well, I was really, you know, if you go back over the newspapers for the first five years of Irish television, the first 10 years, I was pretty high profile as well. And I was being attacked left, right and centre. And I was being attacked not just by journalists, but I was being attacked by those forces I talked to you about who wanted to gain control of Montrose and the entire organisation. And they had to be fought off to establish the independence of the broadcast. And did it ever hurt you, Kay? Well, you see, many people said, oh, it's not personal, It's, it's, it's in your professional capacity. But you can't distinguish between Gay Byrne 
or Joe Nash, the person, or, or, or either of us as broadcaster, of course you feel these, these um, criticisms. Of course you, you resent some of the vile things that are said about you because they reflect, A, on your wife, and, and most especially on Crona and Susie, who were growing up at that time and who were in school and had to face their pals and so on. But when they criticise the amount of money that Ryan Tubridy has paid, that's part of what he's paid for. And if you do, and if you don't, if you can't stand that level of criticism and being carped at and being being torn asunder by the press, then obviously you ought to, you have to get out of the business. But as long as you're as high profile as that and on a salary like that, the assumption is you better be able to take this kind of of uh, barracking. Now Polly says, "Wonderful listening to that wonderful man, Gay Byrne. I wish him well." Look, there are a thousand other questions I could ask you, Gay. All I can say, a genuine honour to talk to you, and uh, we look forward very much to the show at the Lime Tree Theatre on Wednesday evening, and and in Thurles on Thursday. And Thurles on and Thursday. Joe, you've been very kind to me, and thank you very much indeed. Thank you, a pleasure, Gay. Much obliged. Take care. Goodbye. Call Limerick today now on forty six nineteen ninety five.